As we approach the end of 2023, a lot of us have the same questions. Is volatility here to stay? What can I do to better position myself? How can I build a more stable financial future? With expensive capital, a changing office market, and other headwinds, there's a lot to unpack, but also a lot of opportunity. I'm Ryan Williams, founder, CEO, and executive chairman of Cadre, a commercial real estate platform whose focus is to democratize and modernize commercial real estate. To tackle some of these tough questions and provide perspective on what's to come, we want to showcase our house view, the product of our experience, our technology, and our network, and discuss how to best navigate the changing world of commercial real estate. Today's guest has over 25 years of experience working in private equity real estate investing. His role at Cadre is to oversee Cadre's investment thesis, establish our target markets, our target sectors, and build the right risk tolerance. His constant eye on current and future trends make him very well equipped to respond to today's biggest questions, fluctuations, and tomorrow's strongest positions and opportunities. This is Dan Rosenblum, Cadre's Chief Investment Officer. Welcome, Dan. I thought it'd be great if you gave a bit of your background, talked a little bit about just your career, how you got to your current position, and then let's get into the market. Yeah, no, I'll try to keep this short, but as people who know me, I uh, tend not to do that. (laughs) As you mentioned, been working with you, alongside you, for seven years now. I joined Cadre 2016, um, oversee our investment thesis, oversee acquisitions, asset management, help you raise capital. Prior to joining you, I was 11 years at a traditional private equity real estate fund. We also had a hedge fund, which was all real estate focused on investing in public securities, anything real estate and real estate related. Over my 11-year tenure there, focused on acquisitions for the most part. When I left, I was on their investment committee. We had just raised our six kind of closed-end opportunistic real estate private equity fund, which was a little over a billion dollars. Strategy there, very similar to kind of what we're doing here, which was investing in U.S. domiciled real estate and doing it mostly with alongside operating partners, which we can get into. Prior to my tenure at GEM, so that's 18 years of my career combined between GEM and Cadre, I was at Fortress in New York and London, where I met Ben Barnett. Shout out to him. And so I spent about three, four years with Fortress after grad school. And then prior to grad school in the 90s, started my career at Jones Lang LaSalle, which is now, I think, the second largest real estate services firm in the world. Been in the real estate investing and the universal world, whatever you want to call it, for the last 20, call it seven, 28 years. Wow. So there's a lot you've seen. I'm sure a lot you've learned. As you reflect back on your career, And you think about when you were first getting started, what were some of the best decisions you made in maybe those first few years? And what were some of the biggest mistakes that you made as an investor as you look back now? Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, when you're young, you see a lot. The key to being a good investor, in my opinion, is seeing as many deals as you can, seeing things go well, but also seeing things go not so well. So I would say the first four years of my career at Jones Lang LaSalle was in retrospect, something that I thought was extremely valuable because I was able to see and broke. we were more on the brokerage side, right? So we were helping to place capital to real estate deals at the time. But I saw a lot of different ways people looked at deals, whether it was a core deal, an opportunistic deal, or somewhere in between. Saw debt deals, equity deals. So at the time, I didn't realize how much that helped me later on in my career Because it's not like I jumped into a private equity real estate investment firm, 22 years old out of college, 
where you tend to grow up and learn unbelievable things, but you learn from maybe one lens. Whereas as the broker, the first, call it four years of my career, I was able to look through many lenses and see how other people were looking at deals and understand how people were underwriting, understand how people were looking at investing, how they were financing it, the different types of capital out there. So it was really a lucky thing. I look at my career, I've taken some interesting turns. Fast forward to Gem, spent a lot of time getting my sticks and bricks education. Really, those guys are phenomenal at understanding the physical real estate, why you invest in certain buildings, because it's not just about buying, saying Charlotte's a great market, let's go buy everything we can. And very much what Cadre does, which is micro sharpshooting, finding deals, taking a macro view on a market, which we do obviously with our data and with our team, but then getting in there on the ground and understanding, okay, why is this building better than that building? Why does this one lease up? Why does this one get more demand? What's potentially the ceiling heights, the depth of the buildings, the way something's built, the physical systems, how they could be more expensive to run than others. So that's the sticks and bricks education. So I spent 11 years there really growing my investment acumen. It's interesting, like looking back and saying, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? Look, just because a deal performs well doesn't mean that your thesis was accurate. Yeah, sometimes better to be lucky than good. Cap rate compression can do things like that, right? But I actually look back, it's funny. I look at a handful of the deals that I'm most proud of. And one actually was a mess. When we underwrote it, it was actually a retail grocery anchored center in San Diego. Okay. It had a lot of components to it because it was a value add. There's a grocer that wasn't there, but they were paying rent. Part of the thesis was getting them out. Part of it was we we're going to build multifamily. Yeah. Part of it was, you know, there was a lot of like potential upside to this deal. Right. And how long ago was this? Okay. 2000, we bought it in about 2010. Okay. So we so right bought after, it. In a couple years after the GFC. And exactly. We bought it from a fund for about half of what they paid for it in 2007, I wow. believe it was. And the thesis was, and why I'm proud of it, it was, okay, we underwrote this thing and said, these six, seven, eight things could go wrong. Mm. Okay. But if they do, we still think the land value alone would make us money. So when you look at risk-adjusted returns, you're looking at, first and foremost, an unlevered return versus a levered. We look at everything at Cadre as well. Can you explain that just for people? Yeah, let me me back up. So unlevered is when you look at buying a real estate transaction, you're buying it for X. It's before you put on the debt. What is the return expectation for that asset when you don't put any leverage on it? Obviously, leverage is then layered on, as real estate does, in order to get three, four, five, six, seven hundred basis points of IR, depending on how much you leverage it up, whether it's two to one, which would be about 65% leverage, or three to one at 75% leverage. We tend to be conservative. We tend to, depending on the asset, depending on the cash flow, We look at leveraging somewhere between, call it 55 and 70%, depending. So when we look at the unlevered deal, that's really the value of the real estate. And then the leverage is obviously how capital markets can help you generate some outsized return. But when you look back on it, we put leverage on this deal. But we looked at it and said, the levered IRR for that deal, if these things go wrong, we should still make like a 10. So there's still downside protection. And you felt like even if the world further fell apart, the site further fell apart, the project didn't meet, you still had a good base of protection. So we looked at it, could we get the grocer out? If they're on a long-term lease, we kind of said, hey, we think we have a relationship with them. If we get them out, we can unlock a lot of value. If we do get them out, can we get 
that site zone for multifamily because it was a phenomenal corner for multifamily. We thought that if we got multifamily and we put in a new grocer or a gym like an Equinox, we thought we could unlock value with the retail and the multifamily. So there was a lot of upside to this project. Sure enough, over a course of three, four years, we weren't able to get them out. We weren't able to get the zoning. There were a lot of things that we underwrote, we knew going in might go wrong. Well, guess what? It all went wrong. We sold it three years later and made a 13.5% return for our investors. That's awesome. So why I'm proud of that is, hey, we underwrote it. We knew the risks, but our downside protection was that we thought the intrinsic value of that real estate was good enough to take those risks because if one or two of those things had hit, we would have obviously made 20, 30, 40% for our investors. But at the end of the day, it ended up still being a pretty good deal where it was worth the effort. So that's one where things went wrong. Learned a lot of lessons there, but ultimately so still made well. money. So talk to me about, because I know a lot of people listening are, you know, they hear really challenge space, stay away. I think you and I both know it's dangerous to overgeneralize and you frankly will miss opportunities when you do that because this is exactly when some of the greatest investments will arise. What would you say are the top three dangers or risks to someone looking to invest today and in which asset classes? Because you <laughs> highlighted a bunch of dangers and risks. I think there are some people who say, you know what, I actually do want to go and get involved and invest. What should they be looking out for? And how does that vary by maybe office, multi, and industrial hotel? Yeah, look, at the end of the day, people underwrite similar deals very differently, right? So we get this a lot. When an operator will show us a deal, let's say they pencil it, they underwrite it to an 18% return. Our team comes in, we look at it, we stress test the rents, we stress test the expenses, We stress test the exit cap, price per pound, all of that stuff. So there's a lot that goes into it, as you know. It takes our team a lot of time to underwrite it. But like at the end of the day, we'll come back and be like, you know what? We feel like this is more of a 10 to 12% return, not worth the risk-adjusted returns that we think are commensurate with what other deals are seeing in the market. We're going to pass on that deal. And when we pass on, as, as you know, we have a big funnel. Right. So we probably if we get a thousand deals in, maybe we'll underwrite two or three hundred of them and we'll pass on all but maybe one or two. So there's a big funnel there. So these are things that we can do quickly. We have obviously our proprietary technology that allows us to really input data from the last like 10, 20, 30 deals we've seen. So we can compare quickly and see on a relative basis. Is this a good deal versus what we've been seeing? Bad deal and so on and so forth. But when we look at it you kind of go right to it is a couple of things. One is exit cap. What does that mean? Let's say we're buying a deal at a 5% return on levered basis today, right? So let's say the asset's selling for $100, there's $5 in income. For those out there, it's a five cap. Generally speaking, if an operator shows us a deal and they're selling it in three, four, five, six years at a five cap or tighter, sure. we're probably not going to do yeah. that deal. Yeah. That to us, cap rate compression should be upside. It shouldn't be a base case. Always going to underwrite some form of cap rate expansion during our hold period. And that really is correlated with the growth that we're underwriting on the rents as well. Because I think people tend to overlook the fact that they're extremely correlated. The The more growth you're going to see in the rent, probably the more cap rate expansion you should be under. So I think a lot of mistakes are people see this growth and then they see these cap rates that haven't moved. That's probably unrealistic. Could it happen? Sure. Did it happen the last couple of years before 
the credit crunch of probably 12, 18 months ago, yeah, you saw cap rates compress yep. and you saw real growth. So, so exit rate. Exit cap rate. Exit cap rate, and, rate and rather, is one of the rates. Base. Got it. Looking at the two of those and seeing how aggressive they are. Obviously, expenses are a big thing that we focus on. We're looking at these things. Insurance is very top of mind today. Why is that? You hear about the premiums going yeah. up and that being now a new risk for investors when you're doing your due diligence and putting your models together. Talk to us about that, the insurance trends, because it's real. <laughs> the trends are horrible right yeah. now. We actually, as a team, were talking about it yesterday. I have a good friend who's in the insurance business. A lot of people, underwriters, are actually leaving the business right now. Mm-hmm. So there are fewer people out there who are underwriting these things. Construction costs have gone up. So irrespective of all the natural disasters that potentially could happen, just the cost to replace has gone up. So that should increase insurance. But what's happened is these named storms, fires, floods, all the stuff, natural disasters that we're seeing have really caused a shakeup in the insurance industry that's really putting a lot of pressure on the OPEX of these deals. So insurance, which should be a smaller percentage of your operating expenses. We've seen in some assets double, triple, even quadruple in cost. The headline right now is interest costs are up, and that's an easy one one to point to to say, well, sure, yeah, if your interest costs went from 3% to 6%, it's doubling. That's going to eat up into your cash flow. What we're going to dive underneath that, which is really where we're focused, is insurance is a big one. And then there's also changing laws out there where regions like perfect example, Los Angeles put a mansion pact where it's about 5% for anything sold over about a million dollars. What does that mean? It means when you exit a deal, let's say it's a hundred million dollars, it's going to cost you an additional 5 million. Regardless of the sector, it's for any real estate. Exactly. There's always a transfer tax. It's not completely a hundred percent kind of flow through, but it was like 1.1% before. And now it's jumping to like 5%. So those things are things we're watching, which will obviously hit the bottom line. It would hurt value. But realistically, what we're seeing right now and what we're worried about is that the insurance industry right now and and how that's going to affect values. We were literally today, the team, we were going through a bunch of multifamily deals. The obvious things are interest costs are up 2x. Hedging costs, if you have a floating rate loan and you want to hedge and most of these banks that you borrow from, are going to require rate caps, which is protection that rates don't go up too high where all of a sudden you can't cover your debt Mm -hmm. service. However, that's putting a lot of pressure on the NOI of your project. And then on top of that- Net operating income. Yes, sorry, net operating income. But your your net operating income is getting affected by higher costs, which is taxes. Now, what you hear and what we talk about is in inflationary periods of time, why real estate's a good investment. It is. And we're trying to find markets and assets where the revenue, the top line, will offset a lot of these costs so you can still generate some good cash-on-cash returns, but it's harder to find. And it's more important than ever to find people who know how to underwrite these deals properly before you jump in. Yeah, that's that's a good segue. Expertise is critical in real estate. And it's an asset class that is everywhere, but at the same time, it can be incredibly risky in a risky environment if you don't find the right partner and the partner doesn't have a clear track record. They don't know exactly how to manage these situations. They don't have multiple data points. One of the things as we conclude here, I know I've got a couple questions left, is you've done an amazing job building an investment track record that spans decades. I think one of the things that you're best in class, and I'm talking about anybody I've ever met, is how 
strong the relationships are with these local sharpshooters? Because that's one of the best ways to get started is to identify an operator who knows what they're doing. How did you initiate those relationships, those first few, and how do you cultivate those over time? And how does someone who maybe doesn't have the connections get in the game the same way you've been able to? I talk about this a lot. And I talk about how it's a farmer's mentality and not a hunter's mentality. It means you're planting seeds throughout your life. Right. I was born in Chicago, we were just talking about. It. I grew up in Los Angeles. I went to college in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. I worked in New York. I worked in London. Those are all part of the farming that's happened, right? You're building relationships all over the place. Look, in our world, you're going to be in situations where there's tough times and there's tough decisions that have to be made. I like to think that I can be fair with these operators. And at the end of the day, and lenders, by the way, I think our lenders are our partners as well. So we do every deal we have is with a local operating partner or someone who has expertise in that asset, whether it's multifamily, hospitality, or industrial, whether it's a developer. So we'll partner with those people. Now, we'll ultimately form a joint venture with them, and Cadre will make the major decisions on behalf of our investors because we tend to be 80 to 90, 95% of the equity. And these operators come to the table with 5, 10, 20% of the equity, but be incentivized to earn what's called promote, which is outsized profit on the back end, assuming they hit certain return hurdles. So they got to perform. And if they perform, they do take a greater percentage of the profit, rightfully so. So you're trying to incentivize them to really obviously generate as much profit as possible. But with that comes, okay, a lot of trust. A lot of really looking at these operators, A, as 50-50 partners, whether 90% of the money or 50%, no matter what, these are 50-50 partners. They know what they're doing. They're better at doing what they're doing than we are at what we're doing. We have a nice, I guess, give and take where we have an active asset management team in-house that puts guardrails, I like to call it, on our operating partners. But at the same time, they have the knowledge on the ground. They have the knowledge of the asset, you know, the OPEX. But we see so many deals, we actually give and take with one another. But how do we do that? It's years and years of getting to know these operators, doing deals with them. When they call me or any of my team, it's being responsive. And obviously, yes is the best answer they want to hear. But a quick no and why is the second best answer. They appreciate that. And it's just over time is generating trust with them and doing more deals with them. And look, there's trial and error. Sometimes the organ rejects the body a little bit. Not everything goes perfectly well. Exactly. So we'll have times where there's, whether it's a troubled situation or something that the operator did that wasn't right. That's why it's really important to have that active asset management team in-house so that all the incentives are aligned and we're looking out and being a fiduciary for our investors. But at the same time, those relationships, if you look at the deals we've done, we've all built relationships over years where these operators like us and want to do business with us and know that, hey, things get tough. We're going to be fair. We're going to be smart about it, but we're going to be fair and we're going to be working cohesively, assuming everything's above board. And I think that's really important. So the reputation, just forming these lasting relationships over years. At the end of the day, we have data that can inform us of what deals to do. But at the end of the day, a lot of the way our secret sauce, so to speak, and being a sharpshooter is being able to say, okay, yeah, maybe we like Nashville or Charlotte, Raleigh or Tampa, and I'm naming markets that everyone kind of likes. (laughs) But that doesn't mean that you can't generate alpha as an allocator like us. 
by getting on the ground and saying, okay, how do we like this micro deal, which I spoke to earlier, part of that is working with our operator on the ground. And then part of that is working on, okay, what's the best way to look at this specific market and invest in this market, whether it's through obviously an investment on the ground, whether it's capital infusion, depending on where you're going to generate more value at the asset. But a lot of that is built in with trust and relationships. And what's great about it is every market in the U.S., for the most part, I guess there's probably some small markets out <laughs> right, there yeah, yeah. where if we're seeing a deal, the other good thing is we know people on the ground. So we can call someone in Phoenix or someone in Salt Lake City that we're friends with and be like, hey, we're looking at this deal. Sure. What do you think? And They've that's seen important. it many times or know, yeah, what exactly the trends are in themes. So and I think the hyper local focus that we brought to bear is critical. Correct. Because our operator has some insight into the asset, into the location that our competitors don't. And then I think speed, too, is the other thing to me. When you've got those local relationships, people on the ground, you don't have to get up the curve. You've got folks there who understand, know the market well. And clearly, we've cultivated a great cadre of those operators. Last question I have, because I know we're running low on time, is just as you look forward, I mentioned the beginning crystal ball recognizing that nobody knows what the future truly holds. What themes in terms of investing do you personally feel most confident in? And are you translating to what we're doing and and are investing here at Cadre over the next six to 12 months? Yeah, we talk about what's going on in the markets today. It's a dislocation of capital markets, Mm -hmm. not necessarily of assets, but of the capital markets. It's an important difference. Right. So we're going to be looking for assets that we believe we can buy below what we think is their intrinsic value. I always hate the, hey, we're buying this at a discount. No, you're not. It's right. you know, my entrepreneurial finance professor at Northwestern once said, whatever some the highest bidders are willing to pay for right. it. So it's not a discount, but we do think it might be a value that's below what we think is its intrinsic value because of the capital markets today. Look, you can look back to each part of the cycle over the last 30 years and take lessons from it. They're not going to be the same. But something that we've seen that we're going to lean into that we just feel will happen again this time, we're going to see prices, we're going to see assets get repriced. And that's going to take time because it's got to run through the lenders. It's got to have people capitulate on where values are. Finally be willing to sell and mark to market. Right. Transaction volumes are down big this year because if you don't have to sell, you don't right now. So when inevitably that does get sold, we look at these deals and we say, okay, from our perspective, newer assets and markets that we think have a longer runway in terms of kind of population growth and job growth, but the right population, the right job for that asset, we believe that the higher quality, better assets pay up for those because they generally bounce back faster and higher than the other assets when the markets do come back because inevitably Every real estate market, every cycle, the peak of the prior cycle gets surpassed in the peak of the current cycle. Yeah, everyone always talks about the new peaks. It's going to be a new peak. So we want to buy high quality assets and markets that we like with good operators. And that's where we're going to lean in. We say that, look, we're going to put together a portfolio of about 50% leaning into multifamily or residential because we do think that there's still a lot of tailwinds. There's still a lack of supply out there in certain markets more so than others. We have a housing crisis still in the country. We do. And in some markets, it's more predominant than others. And then we look at the other half of our portfolio and we opportunistically are going to buy industrial, hospitality, and office. 
We said that in CDF one, right. the first fund we did. Mm-hmm. We ultimately leaned more into residential because we thought the risk adjusted returns were better in that asset class because we do have that flexibility to look across the U.S. and say, hey, we don't want to put a square peg into a round hole. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to find the best risk adjusted deals. Yeah. So the flexibility to move to different asset classes, different geographic locations is key to generating the best value we can for our investors, obviously. But you look at it today, look, depending on where things shake out, like everyone talks about office. Everyone talks about GFC. The difference between the GFC and today is the GFC, all the assets got hammered pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Here, everything's going to get hit, but in really different levels and different degrees. And the one that's going to probably be the hardest hit is office. And not all offices created equally, but in general, you're going to see a massive repricing and everyone talks about how are people going to be using office. That's a podcast for a different (laughs) But I do believe office eventually will be back, but it might take some time. In this fund, if I say we're going to put out 15 to 20 deals, maybe two or three deals, but it'll probably be a year to 18 months before we really see values come back to where we get excited. So we're going to lean into multifamily, some industrial development. We have a deal that we actually have identified in Denver that we're really excited about. Unique, great operator, off market, exactly what we talked about. But we're going to wait for the market to come to us. We're not going to go to the market. We're going to wait to see how things shake out. I say to the team all the time, we're not going to win a medal for bottom ticking this because it's an illiquid asset class. When it hits the bottom, it doesn't bounce up. It's going to scrape for a while. Right. So we'll have the ability. Catch it. Yeah. yeah. Look, you look back in 2009, 10, 11, and people are like, oh, I bought this office building in San Francisco in 2009 and 10. And you're like, okay, it might have been a great buy from a perspective, but it took another year or two before tenants started to come back. Mm-hmm. And what you saw was the people in 2012 and 13 who bought yeah. may have paid a little bit more on a price per pound at the acquisition, but ultimately they did better from a return perspective because they were able to stabilize it quicker. And also that asset that was bought in 09 that waited two years, guess what? There's operating expenses and debt service that will increase your basis to even higher than where they were buying it in 11, 12, 13. So we're going to be patient, but at the end of the day, we do think it's a good time to have dry powder and to be ready for that market to bounce back because they're this time versus last time, there's a lot of capital on the sideline waiting for cap rates to go from X to Y. And when they do, the capital come right back in quickly versus last time, the people didn't have as much capital. Raise the money. So yeah, speed agility, what we pride ourselves on is going to be critical. So we're out of time, Dan. Yeah. Thank you, Kadre's Chief Investment Officer, incredible partner, incredible investor. Hopefully we've expanded everybody's real estate of mind. Thanks, Ryan. There's a lot to think about from today's show. One phrase, which you heard Dan say several times, is truly worth unpacking. Cap rates. They are among the most critical metrics for measuring commercial real estate value, both on a micro and a macro level. The cap rate is the yield on one's commercial real estate investment. More specifically, it's the net operating income, or cash flow, divided by the asset value, typically expressed as a percentage. Many people ask, why are cap rates high today? First, to reiterate, what is a cap rate? A cap rate is the cash flow a property generates divided by the value of that property. The value of that property is typically impacted by interest rates or the cost of borrowing. 
if it's expensive to cost, fewer and fewer people will buy properties. As a result, the values will come down. So when you think about why cap rates today are higher, it's because the denominator or the value is so much lower than it's typically been. Today, in order to buy a property, you're looking at interest rates north of 5, 6, or 7%. So there are just less people that can afford to buy it. Thus, the value and the demand for those properties goes down. When you're looking at cap rates, whether or not cash flows up or down actually doesn't matter as much as the denominator and the value. So how can investors respond to this changing environment? First, drill down on newer, higher quality properties. Class A or Class B properties typically are not in need of heavy repairs or are relatively new and typically feature lower average cap rates or higher values. Second, intensify your due diligence. Like Dan, it's helpful to project a high exit cap rate when you're doing your underwriting. That way, he and others are rarely surprised when the macro environment quickly changes and there's ample room for volatility. Lastly, investors use historical cap rates to better understand the current market cycle. If you look back, cap rates tend to set the stage for where we might be in the market cycle. History always seems to repeat itself. When you pair cap rates with demographic and fundamental data, you can identify indicators that show if it's a good time to buy or a good time to sell. Some advice for investors unpacking this market is look to the cap rates. Explore new ways to look at them. Understand them fully. Many savvy investors, just like Dan, find their edge there. We want to thank you again for your continued support. Check in next month for a new episode and follow us on Twitter at CadreRE or on LinkedIn for breaking news, content updates, and more. If today's episode sparked your interest, check out our show notes in the description where we'll link some of the organizations and concepts brought up in today's show, as well as a full guest bio. Another resource for you is Cadre's insight page on our website, cadre.com. With each episode, we'll craft a blog post that covers some of the show's biggest moments, as well as more detail that we didn't have time to talk about here. Thank you for joining the Real Estate of Mind and the Cadre team. As always, we look to bring unique perspectives to some of the biggest parts of the industry, all through the lens of sharp guests and deep conversations. We'll be back in a month and hope you will be too.